from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Those with Defense Department security clearances are now being continuously vetted by an automated system. The process will eventually include checking financial and credit records, possible arrests or law enforcement citations, foreign travel, social media posts, and online activity, among other records. The system will flag certain information for further investigation. The Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which issues the clearances, used to manually review existing security clearance holders every five to ten years. After the federal government almost shut down, lawmakers introduced bills to ensure agencies continue operations when Congress didn't pass funding by the end of the fiscal year. Congress avoided a shutdown when it passed a bill keeping agencies funded until December 3rd. Under the bills, if Congress fails to pass funding, agencies would operate at their previous fiscal year's budget or at a level set by a preceding continuous resolution. Details of the different measures vary, but they have been introduced by Democrats, Republicans, and a bipartisan group of lawmakers. The U.S. Postal Service has launched a pilot program to reestablish its own banking system. For now, USPS customers can cash payroll or business checks at a post office in several different locations. The pilot was created in partnership with the American Postal Workers Union. The program is aimed at helping residents in low-income communities who don't have access to banks and must pay cash checking fees that are upwards of $15. The Postal Service will transfer the value of a check onto a gift card for a fee of $5.95. The USPS's original banking system shut down in 1967 after 56 years in operation. The Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense urges policymakers to learn from the COVID-19 pandemic and address critical gaps in the nation's biodefense. That needs to happen before we face the next infectious disease pandemic or biological attack. Asha George is the executive director for the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Asha, welcome to the program. Thank you. So set the, set the stage for us. What are the current bio um, risks that we're facing as, as an American uh, public? Well, we have three categories of risk. One has to do with naturally occurring disease, as you know, with COVID, pandemic influenza, any number of other infectious diseases, uh, especially those that are emerging or are uh, getting stronger. So if you look at COVID with the Delta and the Lambda variants, that sort of thing. Then we have accidentally released organisms, things that are coming out of laboratories, uh, not necessarily the Wuhan laboratory, but even our own laboratories have accidentally released uh, biological agents, things that they've been working with. And then lastly, we have uh, the risk or the threat of biological weapons. Uh, Russia and North Korea now are, are stated by our State Department as having active biological weapons programs. Uh, uh, Iran and China are very close behind. So we have three different areas in which we're having to address the threat. Why do you think we were so unprepared for a global pandemic? I mean, we had one 100 years ago. It's not unheard of. 
I think we just have experienced such great levels of health, especially here in the United States. And we just think that, well, you know, we can handle anything that comes our way. It's not going to be that big, big a deal. We know what to do when it comes to public health. We can just quickly uh, get our arms around it and that'll be the end of it. Uh, but it doesn't always work that way. The Biden administration put out a new American Pandemic Preparedness Plan. Mm -hmm. What's in it? Does it go far enough? Well, uh, we actually, our commission put out uh, a report on the Apollo program for biodefense. And that is uh, a, just a big science and technology effort to address all pandemics and get them all off the table. Obviously with science and technology, but with research and, and other efforts to get us from here to there, similar to us going to the moon. Um, the Biden administration paid attention to that very nicely, thank you, and uh, pulled greatly from that into the pandemic preparedness plan. So what's there is a plan to take us from where we are now, sort of struggling with pandemics, not just the one, but, but a few, uh, and get us to a point where we will be better prepared, where we will be able to quickly create uh, medical countermeasures when we need them, we'll be able to identify what the diseases are that are coming our way, and we'll be able to get ahead of something, or at least be able to respond very quickly uh, for the next time we have a pandemic. And that pandemic, whenever that occurs, is not gonna be in another 100 years. And so in, in the plan currently, mm -hmm. do you feel like it goes far enough? Now are we prepared? I don't think we're prepared right now. I think we're in, a, in the unfortunate position right now of having to respond to and recover from a pandemic at the same time as we're still trying to prepare uh, for the next pandemic that's coming, coming by. We, there's, there's more to be done. So I wanna ask you about leadership. Where do you think the leadership for the nation's biodefense should be in the federal government? Should it be at one of the agencies? Should it be at the White House? It needs to be at the White House, and there's a reason. Uh, we have a tendency to say, well, this is a health issue, and it has to do with human health, so let's leave it at the Department of Health and Human Services. Or if we're talking about an animal or plant issue, we would say the same thing with USDA. But uh, when it comes to biodefense, when it comes to preparedness and responding, it's multiple agencies that are involved. So if you have every single cabinet level departments and many independent agencies involved, you can't have one department like HHS trying to tell the other departments what to do. You have to have the White House in, in charge. But the person there has to be high level enough for all the other cabinet level agencies to actually pay attention to. A low level White House staffer isn't going to get it done. So high enough level meaning what? high enough level we have called for the vice president to be in charge but if not the vice president that it needs to be a deputy national security advisor someone at that level who commands the respect and attention of the cabinet uh, and the independent agencies and has the power uh, and wherewithal to go in to see the president and see the national security advisor and say hey this is this isn't working out. Well, you said, what we need. you said multiple agencies. So mm -hmm. how do you handle all the coordination that would be necessary among all those agencies? Well, you need a strategy, right? You absolutely need a plan. We called for a national biodefense strategy back in our first report in 2015. Uh, Congress agreed. President Obama signed off on that. The Trump administration actually produced it. Now it's up to this administration to take it and implement it. Uh, that 
implementation plan was thin to begin with, and so I think they're working on beefing it up right now. But that's what it's going to take. It's There are too many departments and too many things that need to get done for us to just sort of roll forward without a plan. We need a really clear and specific plan. All right. Well, Asha, we're going to take a quick pause right here, and then we'll continue. Coming next, more of my conversation with Asha George about the emerging biothreats that the federal government needs to start preparing for now. We'll be right back. The Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense says the nation was unprepared to face the COVID-19 pandemic and has new analysis that says the country still remains at catastrophic biological risk. Asha George is the executive director for the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Asha, one biothreat is bioterrorism, where an agent is intentionally released. Mm -hmm. is the, does the intelligence community of the United States have the focus and the resources to address bioterrorism? I think they have the focus. They have to have the focus because both Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have said very clearly, very obviously, and very publicly that they're interested in getting their hands on biological agents for the purpose of bioterrorism. So they have to be on top of it, just the way they are on top of those organizations in general. In terms of resources, though, I don't think they have enough resources. And part of those resources has to do with with the wide variety of threats that they're trying to address. But listen, you know, with everything that's happened with COVID and some people's suspicion that that disease was released possibly intentionally or maybe accidentally, it's clear that the intelligence community has to be much more involved. But you can't just ask them to turn on a dime. They need a greater budget for it and they need more people for it. You mentioned the Taliban, and they have mentioned that they are interested in biological weapons. They have territory now mm -hmm. so that they can create and they can run labs. Correct. What are we supposed to do about that? Well, first of all, I think we need to pay more attention to what, what exactly they are doing and understand what it takes to create a biological weapon or to at least weaponize it enough to conduct bioterrorism. Um, you're absolutely right. When it comes to uh, creating weapons, you need, you need land, you need labs, you need buildings, you need power, you need water, you need all, all of those things, plus some scientists. And now the Taliban has all of that again. So it's incredibly important to pay attention and be putting all those pieces together. But the thing is, they also need additional resources. Afghanistan is just not replete with all of the things that you need for a biological weapon. So we have to be paying attention, or they need to be paying attention to what's happening with the supply chain, both the legal supply chain and the illegal or black market supply chain. Of the things that could be coming mm -hmm. into the country. Resources, mm -hmm. yes. I wanna ask you about vaccine research because mm -hmm. you know Operation Warp Speed gave us a vaccine for COVID incredibly fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there a way to institutionalize vaccine research so that next time we need one quickly we can have that you know that that it can be done 
fast and um, easily. I think there are two ways, yes, that that could happen or that should happen. One is that we have to decide that we're going to need vaccines very, very quickly in, instead of assuming that, well, you know, we'll see a disease and we've got years and years and decades to develop develop something. Or that COVID thing was just an aberration. That'll never happen yeah. again. <laughs> we can't say that again. We had SARS, we had MERS, and now we have COVID. So we should be over that by now. So that's one thing, we have to decide that we need that capability. And the other thing is we have to institutionalize that somewhere. We can't just hope that somewhere in HHS, somebody will decide that, okay, we should, we should do this. That's, that's, too, that's too weak. We need to put the pin on somebody specifically and say, this is your responsibility. It's gonna be your responsibility forever. Put it in your budget. Congress, you, you fund it, and then they can continue on. Do you think there's a way to, to have vaccines ahead of time? Uh, or, or do you just have to wait until you see what the disease is, what's it made out of, and then create the vaccine? I don't know that you can have a vaccine ahead of time for every possible disease that's that's out there or that could be gen genetically modified to be created you know you I don't think you can do that but what you can do is you can look at the families of viruses and the families of bacteria that are out there uh, well viruses I guess in this case and you can say all right let, we're gonna pick one representative sample of this vaccine or virus family and then create the vaccine for that that way when the thing comes along that falls into that family, you can say, okay, we've already, we've already come this far. Now we just need to modify this vaccine or build on what we've already gotten. And it's possible that that vaccine that was made for, you know, a sister or brother of whatever we're worried about, that might be the thing we can go ahead and start issuing to people and it would provide some In the partial meantime. immunity. Yes. Okay. And you had said that, you know, it's not going to be another hundred years until we get the next global pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you give us 50 years maybe? Like how, how often are we looking at these things? Well, I think the truth is we're still, we're, we're dealing with a new pandemic now. It kind of depends on how you, how you look at it, right? Either it's the old pandemic that's, that's still with us or it's a new one. I think we're talking about needing to prepare for pandemics as if they're going to occur on an annual basis. I know it's hard. I know we don't want to do that but it is the nature of viruses to, to be circulating throughout the world and taking advantage of our weaknesses to proliferate. Um, so we're weak now and we should, we should be expecting it. So finally, Asha, I wanna ask you about the emerging bio threats. Mm -hmm. What are the things that have not happened yet that we should be aware of? Well, we always need to be worried about pandemic influenza. You know that. Uh, we didn't really have much of a pandemic last year. We have one every year. It's just that sometimes it's really harmful to us and sometimes it's not. I think last year we didn't have that issue because COVID was sort of dominating uh, you know, our bodies and the, the pandemic flu could not get through. That's one, that's always one. Um, I think also we have to be looking at other coronaviruses and we have to be looking at those viruses that we sometimes get sick with, uh, but, but not always. I'm particularly concerned about viruses like Ebola, where they just blast through the body. Right now, Ebola is an unsuccessful virus in that it blasts through the body and it kills the host. Once it figures out how to mutate such that it doesn't kill the host, or at least not this badly, 
suddenly it's it's an incredibly infectious disease and it's horrible as you know and if that spreads throughout the world we're screwed we have not been able to get it under control in Africa we have not and that is a real red light indicator that it could be coming Okay, well, thanks for that uh, upbeat message yeah, at the end. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Asha, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Up next, a happy fiscal new year to both agencies and federal contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the continuing resolution and how contractors can move forward with current projects. We'll be right back. The White House has passed a temporary funding bill that will run through early December. The bill will affect current acquisition projects underway and those planning to get started this new fiscal year. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. He's former president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Larry, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks. The government didn't shut down, which is a good thing, but we do have a continuing resolution. What kind of impact does that have on federal contractors? Mimi, by now, experienced federal contractors should be familiar with starting each new fiscal year under a continuing resolution. This is kind of our annual tradition now. The real question is, how long will it go? The current CR goes through December 3rd. There probably will be some smaller ones if we feel like uh, Congress can make uh, progress on getting an entire appropriations package done by Christmas. That's really what I would hope for in looking at all of this. You don't know if that'll happen this year, but that would be the best possible outcome. In the meantime, if you're a contractor, you know that there are no new starts that are paid for with appropriated funds. You get to work on the projects that you got to work on last year, as long as there's funding for that. And most cases there is. But if you want that new funding, then you've got to get a little creative. You have to ask your customers if they have access to capital accounts that might have uh, the scope to do the type of work you want to do, or if there's some sort of no-year money, like the Technology Modernization Fund for IT projects. Those are things that would still allow new projects to get at least underway while Congress catches up and passes a full-year FY22 appropriation. Well, as you said, for experienced contractors, this has become the new normal. Everybody knows that this is now going to happen. So they're prepared and they've adjusted to it. What about small businesses? What about contractors that aren't as experienced? I think that's a real challenge uh, for them, Mimi. Starting a new year, smaller businesses tend to be more cash flow dependent. And right now, if you don't have new projects that you can bring in the door and start to work on, that can really hurt your cash flow, which in turn hurts your employees. So you've got to have something else going on. You've got to have some other type of work, whether it's state and local government work or private sector work, uh, something that you can uh, rely on to keep your business going, or hopefully you had a really good end of FY21. I've been talking to clients of mine who had a good end of FY21 and they said a lot of their items aren't going to be able to ship until, until December. So for them, the key is, you know, how much can they bill on stuff they've already bought in the door between now and then. But that's a better problem to have because you've got work at the end of FY21. You can start to work on that now. The funds have been obligated. You can get paid. So if you're a small business and had a good end of year, you'll probably be okay. 
if you're brand new coming into this marketplace at the start of FY22, I got news. Uh, you're going to have to have a whole lot of meetings, a whole lot of discussions, setting the table for business that you might get in quarter two or quarter three. Well, you talked about maybe some workarounds like the Technology Modernization Fund. That can be used for IT projects. What else? What if you can't use that? What else can you do? Well, certain agencies have capital funds, Mimi. Uh, they have different ways that they can use them. They're not all uh, open for different types of projects. Sometimes they're very specific for things like non-commercial item development. Uh, you could also have some funds that are, have no year money. Uh, that's limited, but one area where you see those is in defense commissary. And while that's small, there are people who work in that industry and they continue on just as they did last week because they've got self-generating funds that they don't have to worry about Congress passing. So there are, those are just some examples. But really, getting final FY22 appropriations passed quickly is a big deal for getting a good start off to FY22. You've got these little stop gaps, but they're very isolated, very specially purposed. They may help uh, at a tactical sense, but they're not gonna replace the strategy. Larry, let me ask you about the debt ceiling, because we're gonna be hitting that relatively soon. Does that affect contractors? How does that, how does that impact them? I think it has a big potential impact, Mimi, on contractors. Uh, the number one impact is that if we go into a default, uh, the Treasury is going to have to decide who gets paid. So if you're a contractor, and even if you have an invoice in before an agency, you might not get paid on that invoice if we have a default in the debt ceiling. That gets back to the cash flow issue for small businesses we just talked about. But it also goes further than that. You're working with federal people in agencies either on current projects or on prospective projects. Those federal people may not get paid either. And if they're not getting paid, they're probably going to be furloughed. You know, we saw that happen earlier this week with the Transportation Department furloughed several thousand employees because the Transportation Fund didn't have enough money in it. Merely the prospect of that happening sometimes is enough to slow things down as people get caught up pondering the what-if scenarios. All right. Well, Larry, we're going to watch this and see what happens. That's all we can do. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the program. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 p.m. on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.